0: This morning I will probably speak in a little different manner than I have in times before. I'm just going to speak in a, (laughs) I say this in a calm way, because what I've been commissioned to speak on this morning is very personal. And at times it's hard to talk about. So I ask that you bear with me this morning as I share and I open up my life in a very, very, very transparent way. As I prayed and fasted this week for this service this morning, when I was first asked to preach and I thought, oh, and this is great. This is going to be fantastic. I can't wait to preach this or speak on this, and the closer it came, the tougher it got. Because it brought back a flood of emotions, feelings, but yet it opened up new pathways of prayer for my family. So this morning, with the help of the Lord, I invite you to hear what the Spirit is wanting to say in this house this morning. My parents were raised in a home that was good Christian homes. My mom and my dad were good kids. They were good young people. They they went to church on Sunday. They were kids that did what other kids normally do. They got in trouble occasionally, but they were good kids. My m- grandma, my mom's mom, would take my g- mom to a place called Everett's Chapel all through her Adolescent years and my dad, what I found out after doing a lot more research this week is that my dad went to church as a young boy to a Pentecostal church. My my grandpa, David, took my dad every Sunday to an apostolic Pentecostal church. But my my mom and my dad were very... Very normal. My, my mom did dance. That's where I get my, my awesome moves from. My dad was in a band. That's where I get my drum playing and my singing ability. I tease all the times. I, I play drums and they say those who can't play instruments play drums. I'm sorry to all the drummers. Forgive me. That's just what I was told, but I rebuked it in Jesus' name my mom and dad met in high school their freshman year. They were in love at first sight. They began to do what they called, I believe, in the 60s, courting. Not dating, you courted. And they did what normal, typical teenagers would do at that time. They hung out. They went down to the, the soda shop. They drove the strip. Anybody ever drove the strip? Oh, yeah, that was a thing to do on Friday night. You get in the right, get in the whip, as they call it now. You get in the whip, you roll down the windows, and you drive real slow. You drive to the end where there's no more gas stations or no more life, and you turn around, and you come all the way back. And you get to the other end, and there's no life, and then you turn around, and you go all, and you do it for several hours. And you run all your gas out. Or you would sit in an abandoned parking lot with your trunk up, and you'd sit in your trunk. I told you I'm an old soul. I did those things. They dated all throughout high school. It was right after high school that my father asked my mother to marry him. And they got married when my mom was 19 years old. And they began to start their family. It was while my mother was pregnant with my eldest sister Denise that my father was drafted into the Navy. He was specifically in the CB unit. This was the maintenance battalion. They would go in and they would build camps, install electricity, build roads and bridges for the troops. Although my dad was never officially shipped off, to the Vietnam War due to major complications with my mother's pregnancy from my sister, uh, he was honorably discharged from the Navy and he got to go home. It was right after his discharge from the Navy that my dad began working on the maintenance department in the prison system. And just to show you how small the world actually is, my sister's husband of 30 years now his father was actually my dad's boss when my dad got out of the navy so god knows what he's doing he went to work in the prison system it was there that my dad began his drug use my dad began smoking marijuana And not only did he begin to smoke marijuana, but he began to sell drugs to the inmates. He would take the inmates off the compound and he would give them and sell them drugs. And he became not only a drug user at the time, but also a distributor. He would take the state truck and he would tell them, get in guys, we're going to go do a job. And they would go to my dad's marijuana greenhouse and they would harvest the marijuana. It ultimately took uh, that, that job that my dad was doing and him selling the marijuana and he lost that job. He was arrested for dealing in paraphernalia and he ended up at a major company in our city in Clayton, North Carolina called Data General. He was an electrician and there he became an electrical engineer. This is where the real cycle of my family began that would take us all down a very, very dark and painful road. See, my parents began to get high and get drunk every night and every weekend with their friends. Partying was the norm. It was what they did. You get drunk, but you get to a point where the hangover didn't affect you and you could go to work and you could function without anyone ever knowing. See, my dad, and I remember it like it was yesterday, 503 Bowling Street. It was a brick home, and it had a carport off to the right side. And in that carport was a little storage area. And my dad would there have his own marijuana growing operation right there in the carport of our home. That was right when I was born in 1979. That wasn't all that he had. My dad had multiple greenhouses down by a place called Noose River. It was kind of secluded. It was right behind an elementary school. He had multiple greenhouses filled with marijuana plants. In fact, my sister, who was about six to seven years old at the time, would go and help harvest the marijuana with my dad. She tells me she would remember watering the plants and pulling the buds off of the plants. See, growing up, my dad also loved motorcycles. He loved his Harley Davidson. It was a collector's version of 1969 Lowrider. Motorcycles became a major part of his life. He was in a motorcycle gang called the Scallywags. It was a finger off of the notorious group Hell's Angels. He was the president of this motorcycle gang. Him and many of his friends from high school and many, many others would go around town and sell drugs and they would have parties at our house. In in the barn behind our house, when I was just a baby, they would have parties in the barn and you walk in and there would be so smoke-filled you could not see who was in the barn. It was at this point, that my dad became the largest drug dealer in our city. He was the largest distributor of marijuana in all of Clayton, North Carolina. In fact, my dad sold to the chief of police. My dad sold to many, many police officers. And that's how my mother got her job as a secretary for the chief of police. He would sell all over all over Clayton, Smithfield, into Raleigh, North Carolina. It was after a while of growing and harvesting, using and selling, I learned that my dad had apparently, he and my mom both, at the exact same time, without either one knowing, were having affairs on each other. My dad was having an affair on my mom, and my mom was having one on my dad. So my mom, in a fit of rage, kicked my dad out of our home. Now, I'm only four years old at this point. I, this is all stories that have been told to me. My sister tells me that when my dad, as he was delivering a pound of marijuana on his 1969 motorcycle. He was going down Highway 70 in the left lane. There was a median and two more lanes on the right side. He was headed to deliver a pound of marijuana when a young man pulled out of a gas station all the way across the lane. My dad then slid his Harley Davidson. It caught the underside of the car, slammed him against the car and threw him 200 plus feet across the median into the oncoming traffic on his head. It was at this point that they life-flighted my dad to Smithfield or Johnston County Hospital where he had the size of a softball tumor on his brain from where he had landed because he didn't have a full helmet on. He just had the typical motorcycle gang cap. By state law, my dad had to remain on life support for two days. And within those two days... Within those two days, my mother made the ultimate decision that he was never going to come back. And they pulled the plug on my dad. See, my dad had just come home a week before his motorcycle accident to kind of reconcile his relationship with my mom and to be a father to me and my sisters. My dad passed away on his... Accident was June the 2nd. He passed away on June the 4th. He was buried on June the 6th. I was four years old up until this point. I have have no recollection of what my father looked like. Zero. I have no idea. Even until I was older in life, zero what my father looked like. Until I was 15 years old and I saw a picture of my dad and my dad was laying in the casket. And he had a Budweiser hand in his, a Budweiser in one hand. He had his scallywag black leather chaps on and a a dirty magazine laying on his chest and a joint in his left hand. It was at his funeral that they played rock and roll and they got drunk and they got high and they celebrated his life as a part of the Hell's Angels. When they closed the casket, They put him and began to take him right outside to the graveyard where literally hundreds of Harley Davison's circled the graveyard during the whole entombment of back into the grave. My sister says you could not even hear what the minister was saying because the thunder of motorcycles was so loud. It was after my dad died that we thought that my mother would straighten up that she would as we say today get her act together but only to have her bring in her lover from her affair to live in our home while me and my sisters were taken away to go live with family members for several months and while we were gone she had brought this man named Chuck into our home who she was having an affair with. When we got home, he was there and now he's our new dad. He's the new stepdad. But see, the problem with Chuck was Chuck was a major cocaine dealer and he dealt heavily in Percocets. So my mother went from marijuana, what they call the gateway drug and alcohol, to now strongly abusing cocaine and Percocets on a daily basis. This was the week that my sister, my oldest sister, Denise, decided that she was going to move out because a short time after we got home, my mother went on a drunken and drugged out binge. We did not see her for seven days. My sister tells me that she scourged through the couch cushions to find change that way she could feed my sister and myself. We ate crumbs. We ate whatever we had. Maybe that's why I love fried bologna. I don't like spam though. (laughs) My sister left. Denise, she didn't want to. She told me on the phone. She said, Tim, I didn't want to leave. Because I was scared for you and Angie. The night she before she left, I remember sleeping in bed because I dealt with fear so bad, anxiety so bad at just six, five, and six years old. I was sleeping in the bed, and Chuck and my mom had been fighting. We could hear them throughout the night. They were high on cocaine, drunk off of alcohol. And all of a sudden, I hear crashing, and my sister grabs me, and she pulls me in close, She begins to tell me, it's okay. It's all right. We're going to be okay. Chuck kicks in our bedroom door, throws an eight ball of cocaine on the bed that burst and goes all over us, punches a hole above our head, and with very many explicit words, basically tells us, I'm leaving. I cannot take your mother anymore. As a young kid, I looked and I said, why don't leave? I thought that Chuck was my real dad because I did not know my dad. There was no pictures of my dad. I thought that when I went and came back home and Chuck was there, that he was now my dad as a little kid. This was my process of thinking. See, Chuck provided a lot for us. Cocaine bought us a 27-foot two-bedroom yacht. Cocaine bought me a little 70 Yamaha motorcycle with training wheels. I know, it's funny. I had pictures of that at home and I thought about putting it up, but I would probably never hear the end of it. (laughs) Drugs and life insurance also bought me a three-wheeler. It bought us a house on the beach. I had everything that a kid could want, except I did not have love. I had a mom that always chose drugs and men over her own children. Can I stop right here and tell you this? Mom and dad, no career, no man, no woman, nothing is worth more than showing your children that you love them and that they're the most important thing in your life. When he left, we could not find my mother. She went on another binge. So my sister loaded us up into the car, and we went to a place called Ranch Road. It was the normal biker party hangout. My mom, my sister thought my mom would be there with one of her friends named Jake Barnes. And of course they were all there. They were extremely drunk, extremely high, On pills and cocaine and LSD and marijuana. And when we got there, my sister got out of the car and went and found my mom. Only to have her running out of the car while me and my sister are still in her Honda Prelude. She jumps in real fast, doesn't put on her seatbelt and Begins to literally go as fast as you can, and we can hear bullets going by because Jake Barnes, my mother's friend, was shooting at us because we came to take his party girl away. It was at this time that social services stepped in and took us away from my mom. They put my mother in rehab to help her get clean while we were away. I was gone for a long, long time. And my mother had convinced my grandmother, her own mother, to let her out, that she was fine. Everything was okay. Mom, I'm clean. I'm good. I'm not going back. She came back and she got stayed clean for a short time, long enough to get us back. And when she got us back, the drugs and the alcohol started. All over again. You say well. You've told us the story of your parents. But what about you? Here's about me. What it did is it created such anger. And bitterness. And forgive me because. This week has stirred up a lot of emotions. That I thought I had put down. A lot of things and wounds. That I thought were healed. But I stand here today feeling the anointing of God's presence <sighs> to tell somebody. <sighs> I had such anger and bitterness. I remember a man by the name of Ernest. Chuck was out of the picture. A man named Ernest, who was my mother's friend, but he was only a major enabler. They would party together. He liked my mom. And they got into a fight one night. We had a 55-gallon fish tank in our home. And I remember him slamming my mom up against the fish tank. And I took off as a 9-year-old kid running into the darkness. Because they were fighting and it was chaos. There was screaming and there was hollering. There was stuff being thrown and cursing and unimaginable if you've never been there. And he told my mother, I'm going to kill you if you leave. So he didn't want to do that. So he grabbed her car keys and he threw them into a field. And now here we are. I'm cowered. There was a small cemetery right beside our house. And I'm cowered behind a headstone because I hear the screaming and the fighting. And he's chasing my mom through the front yard. After a short time, they kind of fell apart as friends. And my mom told me the same old story and sang the same old song that I've heard many times. I'm going to do better, guys. I'm going to do better. We're going to start over. We're going to go to the beach this weekend and we're going to have a good time. When There's not going to be any drinking, only to get there. And my mom passed out by 9 o'clock that night. And my sister, 12, and me at 8 or 9... My mom, we're asleep, my mom wakes up and she goes to the store only to come back with a man that she found drunk in a phone booth. His name was Wayne. Wayne was a super hard worker. He was a sheetrock guy. He was a little bitty guy about this big and probably a buck 25 soaking wet, but just pure muscle because he hung sheetrock. Wayne was a very good guy when he wasn't drunk. But when he got drunk, he was the most violent man I've ever seen in my life. I can tell you story after story of him beating my mom, hitting her, dragging her by her hair, throwing stuff at our us, me and my sister. And all this time, anger is building up in me, and I joined with some guys from our from my little group. I say it was a gang. We were really probably just a bunch of wannabes. but if you looked at me wrong, I probably would have knocked your lights out. If I even thought you were going to talk to me and I didn't want you to talk to me, I would have punched you out. That is the absolute truth. I had so much anger and bitterness and I wanted just to get it out and I didn't know how, so I was destructive. I stole. I fought. So my mom thought, well, I'm going to get him away from that environment. We bought a 110-year-old home. This thing... Oh man, it was bad. There were squirrels living in the chimney. It was flea infested. Hey, I will tell you this. I didn't have to mow the yard. I had to sweep the yard. I may get an amen from some of you. The old straw brooms. and They used to go out there and sweep the dirt. Yeah, that was this guy. Mom's like, mow the grass. I'm like, there's nothing to mow. We'll get the broom and sweep it. I wish I had a picture. I used to wear bib overall. I was skinny at one time, Brother Scott. I had, I had ribs under here somewhere. And I had a picture of bib over, jean bib overalls, no shirt, and get ready, a bowl cut. I was the hottest thing in the town. Of course, there was no neighbors for a mile and a half. <laughs> I'm out there, my bib overalls, my no-shirt on and barefooted, and I'm sweeping away with my cool bowl cut. And it wasn't the this bowl cut, it was the cool bowl cut. Went down the form to, yeah. If I had a little more hair right here, I'd bring back the bowl cut. But it wouldn't look right when you're thinning on top. We they bought this house and we were gonna renovate it. And we're literally a mile and a half from anybody. And it was one Friday night. They were drinking and by this time I'm used to it. I'm used to the drinking. I'm used to the partying. I'm used to the fighting. I'm used to the separating at like 12 years old. And I can see it just as sure as I'm standing here. I'm standing in the living room. And through this doorway is the kitchen, the stove and the sink. And my little bedroom was over here, no bigger than probably a four by six closet. It's where I slept, riddled with fleas. Should not have been habitable, but I was home with my mom and I wasn't with somebody else. And I heard them fighting one night about two o'clock in the morning And I thought, oh, it's just a normal Friday night. They're fighting again. It's a normal Friday night. And I hear my mom begin to scream like I've never heard her scream. And I open the door. And he's on top of my mom. And he's just pounding her in the face over and over and over. And every bit of anger that I had been building since a young kid welled up inside of me and I ran over to the kitchen drawer and I grabbed a knife out and I began to stab him in the back of the neck multiple times at 12 years old he leans over like this to look and I just hit him in the face he didn't go down so I began to kick him repeatedly in the face until he got off of my mom you say, why would you do that? Your mom's an alcoholic. She's a drug addict. She's abandoned you, you her whole life. Why would you take care of her? Because that's my mom. He got off of her and I grabbed my mom and I drug her out the door, screen door, and I finally got her up on her feet and it was just a long, dark, dirt road and we begun, began to run, run as fast as a drunk person can run. Thank God, I I can honestly say probably thank God she was drunk because we were weaving and wobbling. And he was shooting. It was so close I could hear the bullets. I thought, Mom, we got to go. We snuck back a couple hours later after he had passed out. We got in the car and we just drove and we slept in the car for a day or so. I thought, mom, we got to get help. She goes, we are, we're never going back. We're going to go back and we're going to get clothes and we're going to leave. We went back and we got clothes, but we never left. And the beatings continued and my anger continued to build and to build. And it was the summer of 1994, 93, I believe it was. My grandpa, David, my dad's dad, Called and said, Peggy, my mom, I need some help setting up trailers this summer. You think Tim could come help? By this time, I'm around 14. And she goes, yeah, he'd love to do that. So I went to stay with my grandpa, David. And I began to set up mobile homes. It's amazing. It's hard work. At 14, it's hard work. Carrying center block. That's why I got these big old guns. (laughs) I got to be careful. Don't want to tear the suit up. (laughs) I mean, the button may pop. The arm sure ain't. (laughs) So I went and we set up trailers. And it was, it was a, a Sunday, we had the day off. We worked six days a week from sun up to sundown. And now that I think about it, I don't think he ever paid me. <laughs> I guess he thought me living in his house, eating his food was enough. I don't remember. But I was sitting there watching TV and my grandmother, Linda, who is not my real grandmother, she's my step-grandmother, my grandfather was backslid. I did not know that at the time. He was in church, out of church, in church, out of church. I wonder if he would have stayed in, if my dad would have done right. Because, see, Just step back a moment in the story, and I'm sorry to do this. My dad sat in the same kind of service you're in today. He heard the word. He felt the spirit of God, but he never made a move to the altar to declare his life. And Jesus Christ in it. My grandfather was backslid, but my step-grandmother was on fire for God. I just spoke to her this week, and she's 86 years old, and she sounds the same as she did when I was 14. I'm telling you, living for God can preserve your life. It'll save you from a lot of stuff. It'll keep you from a lot of stuff. And she says to me, as I'm sitting in there in the chair and now my grandpa loved Levi, I, hopefully I'm not saying the pants, but Levi Strauss, is that right? The, the chew, is that what it's called? And he liked long cut stuff. And I'm sitting there and I got my Gatorade there and I'm watching TV and I'm not paying attention and I grab what I thinks my Gatorade only to take a big old swig of that Levi Strauss. I can tell you this, I didn't need the Holy Ghost to break me from ever chewing tobacco. <laughs> I've been to see God kept me. That's one of the things the pastor preached about. God kept me. <laughs> and she looks at me and I'm flipping through stations. There ain't nothing on TV. I'm just flipping. She says, Tim, would you like to go to church with me today? Now, the, most of the summer, she did not say a word. It's almost the end of summer. She didn't say a word. And I said, "Uh, okay, yeah, sure. I didn't ask what denomination it was. I didn't ask, do they handle snakes? (laughs) I didn't ask, do they drink Kool-Aid? I didn't ask anything. She said, do you want to go to church? I said, sure, I'll go. When I got there, holy mackerel. People come in, hey, Tim, I haven't seen you since you were a baby. Oh, you're a good-looking kid. (laughs) I went, thank you. I'm in the right place. (laughs) They begin to love on me. And it was all well and good until they started, can't nobody do me like Jesus. And people started shouting and running. I'm like, oh my God. Where did I? They were running, shouting. And I'm talking, oh, where everybody shouted, everybody worshiped. There was no spectators, there were participators. And we had miracles, signs, and wonders. Because when everybody gets involved, there's nothing that God will not do. And I sat there and I white knuckled that pew. I thought, oh, please, God, don't let anybody come near me. (laughs) Because, you know, we, we we are like that. Oh, man, I'm not used to this. Please don't let them come over here. And nobody did. But they hugged me afterwards. And they said, We're so glad that you came. Wednesday came. Wednesday. 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 Everybody get that? Wednesday. Where n- I'm gonna say it because everybody believes it, where nothing ever happens. It's what people think. Oh, I'm just coming to Wednesday night. I'm not going, nothing happens. So I- Wednesday came. And she said, Tim, you want to go to church? Guess what I'm doing? What every teenager does. Nothing. (laughs) She says, Tim, you want to go to church? I said, sure, I'll go. I went on a Wednesday. It was happening. I was white knuckling. I was scared still. Sunday came. She didn't have to ask me if I wanted to go. I was already dressed because when I got into the church, nobody had to really say anything. It's what I felt that kept me going. I never felt love like that. I never felt accepted for who I was. And I never felt like somebody just wanted to use me for what I had so I wanted to go and I kept going and I sat over there with my grandmother it was a smaller church of around 40 maybe 60 people and we had two seats and we sat on the fourth row with my grandmother and my grandmother was a shouter I mean she was what I call a hucker bucker <laughs> thank you I mean you better wear safety goggles because bobby pins are coming your way <laughs> and I'm standing there and church is going on and You know, I've been gripping the pew for about a month now, not moved. I've not made a move. And I thought, well, I might as well clap a little bit. And, you know, we know how it goes. They sing the same song. See, now we sing a song. We clap. We worship. We sing another song. Back then, you you never change the tempo. You just change the lyrics. You go from can't nobody do me like Jesus to he's God in the Father. Y'all know that? He's God in the Father. God in the Son, God in the Holy Ghost, and all these three are one, I know God. Well, He's God in Oklahoma. He's God in Tennessee. He's God right here in Terre Haute. He's God. And then that people go crazy. But here's the one. Here's the verse that God gave me a song. The angels cannot sing. Glory, hallelujah. Thank God I've been redeemed. (laughs) He's a great king. He's doing great things.
1: My soul says (laughs) Thank you. Woo
0: (laughs) Mm. I gotta stay on topic. (laughs) They were shouting, people were worshiping july thirty first, nineteen ninety four. That's the date. Brother Brown from Peru was preaching. I don't know what he said. I can't tell you one thing he said. I can tell you song service lasted for like 65 minutes. And I'm over there like, Jesus, can we sit down? You, wanna, you don't need jazzercise. You don't need exercise. You don't need Peloton. What you need is to run the aisles. Am I okay, Sister Danny? What you need is, you want to work your calves? Just shout a little bit. This is about the only exercise I get all week is church. <laughs> Other than that, it's fork curls.
1: <laughs>
0: Service goes on, and I'm sitting there. I got to hurry, and I'm white-knuckling because it's one of them services, Elder. People are shouting and talking in tongues. People are running the aisles, and they're doing crazy stuff. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh, my Oh, no, they're going to touch me. They're going to touch me. They're going to do it. Please don't come over here. Please don't come over here. And I started to sit down and my grandma looked over at me. Now, she meant nothing by the look, but the fear of God came in me. She's like, you better not sit down because I'd seen her huck and buck and shout. And I didn't want her to accidentally shout my face. <laughs> and so I stood there and he preached. Don't know what he preached. But I can tell you this. At the end of it, after worship went and everybody was involved and engaged. Nobody was standing. Nobody was doing anything. He was a missionary. He presented his slides. He talked about his country. And he wanted a PIM. And he says, you know, I just feel like somebody, if you want the Holy Ghost today, God wants to give it to you. And I stood up out of that fourth pew and I stood up all by myself. I didn't look and I just walked right down to the front. I didn't know who Adam and Eve were. I didn't know what repentance was. I didn't know about Jesus name baptism. I didn't know about the Holy Ghost. I just knew that I had something right there in my throat. I couldn't swallow. I couldn't hardly breathe. You know what that's called? It's called conviction. I had conviction and God was telling me, if you'll come, I'll help you. And I walked to that front and I stood right there at the front of that church and I lifted my hands with
1: tears running down my face. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to pray and I stood there and somebody came up to me the same ones that loved on me when I was broken, when I was hopeless when I had nothing, they came and they said that's it to him he loves you, tell him you love him I said I love you Jesus and it was in a matter of two minutes, God filled me with the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues No man told me how to say it, but God, oh, the King of glory came in. It didn't take long. You want the Holy Ghost this morning? All it takes is you to completely surrender and realize you are broken. You are undone. You have nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And when you have Him, God will fill your most inner being. Uh, You may be seated.
0: God filled me with the Holy Ghost. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. I had somebody on one side saying, let go. And somebody on the other side saying, hold on. But in spite of people's miscommunication. (laughs) No, let go. No, he needs to hold on. No, let go. I'm kidding, that's a bad joke. That doesn't happen. God, fill me with the Holy Ghost. And you know what they did? They took the Bible. They didn't have to do it, but they did. They took it and they turned to the book of Acts. Right there at the altar. They said, Tim, you've repented. I said, I said, what? I did what? They said, what happened to you? I said, I have no idea. I just spoke in some kind of funny language. And it wasn't a, just a little, I mean, nobody had to tell me, see my tie, tie, my tie. Nobody had to do that. Nobody took me to a room and told me to ride on my Honda, sell on my Suzuki. I, I could go all day with these folks. <laughs> and they stood right there at a 15 years old and they said, you see right there, then Peter said unto them they started off at verse 37 now when they heard this they were pricked in their heart and they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles men and brethren what shall we do in other words they said Tim they were asking the people what do we do to be saved we realize that our sin crucified God what do we do then Peter said unto them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost they said Tim you've already received the Holy Ghost on credit I said sweet what do I got to do They're like, you just got to be baptized in Jesus' name. I wish I would have put the picture up. It was the baptismal tank where my pastor got in with duck hunting (laughs) waiters. They were up to here. They used to do that back in the day. They got in with you. And I remember, even though God forgave me and God filled me with the Spirit, I had such a weight of life on me that I did not know was there. And I stepped in that water and he said, Tim, his name was Pastor Barry Bird. He said, Tim, you've had a tough life, but God's brought you this far now. (laughs) He said, when you go down in the name of Jesus, all your sins, everything you've done and said, all the anger and the bitterness and the hatred, all of that's going to be under under the blood. God's going to cast it. He's never going to remember it. You're going to be brand new. I said, all right. And I stood there as a little 15-year-old angry kid in that baptismal. And he put me down in Jesus' name. And when I came up out of that water, I can't explain it. There's no feeling like it I've ever felt again in my whole life. When I came up out of that water, there was nothing but high-quality H2O. And I went down with the weight of the world and pain, hopelessness. Because statistically, I should turn out to be a drug addict. Statistically, I should be an alcoholic. Statistically, I should not know how to treat my wife and my children. Statistically, I should be a hopeless case. But God...
1: I've come this far! This far, not because of me, but because God. You have come this far, not because of you, but because of God's grace, because of God's mercy, because of His loving kindness. <laughs> I'm this here I'm this far not because I've been good but because God has been good I'm not standing in front of you with a suit on because I have a lot it's because God's been good What you're looking at is not professional Pentecostals. You're looking at blood-bought sinners that have been saved by grace. They've been delivered. They've been set free. We've come this far. Hear the word. Hear the word. Romans 8. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. But ye have received the spirit of adoption. Whereby we cry. Abba Father. I got a word for you. We are saved. But God did it all. God brought me into the church. Not because I deserve it. But it's because of his mercy. It's because of his grace. Let me say, let me just stop this misnomer now. You think that if you repent and get baptized and full of the Holy Ghost, that life is going to be grand. That is a lie from the devil. Because I was 17 years old, living for God, praying and fasting, and I was sleeping in a truck for months while going to high school. I was homeless, yes. Well, God didn't make a way. No, that was the pathway God made for me. God looked at my life and said, I know you can endure what I'm about to put you through. I know you can handle it because I will not take you to it if I can't bring you through it. So be not weary and well-doing if you'll keep marching on, if you'll keep stepping out by faith. Whatever you're going through, God's going to take it through you because you've got power. wish I had some lost and some undone people, some bruised and some battered people that felt like they had no hope that would come to this altar and say I've come this far because God has brought me a mighty long way I don't deserve it I couldn't earn it but somehow some way god has brought me this far God has brought you this far, but God's not done with you yet. Your life life is not finished. It doesn't matter what your situation is right now. It doesn't matter. It may look hopeless. You may be full of anger and bitterness. You may be weary and wounded and sad. But God said, I brought you this far not to let you die. But God's going to help you to continue your journey. First Peter says, which in time past were not a people. <laughs> oh, I was not a part of him. But now, verse ten, but now the people of God which have Not obtained mercy, but now obtained mercy.
0: We've got to where we are by faith. You've got to where you are by grace. You don't deserve any of it. David said, behold, I was conceived in sin and shapen in iniquity. You are a sinner that is saved by grace. I've come this far, but I'm nowhere near where and what God wants for my life. Here's what Paul writes: What shall we say then to these things? If God be before us, <laughs> who can be against us? He spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all? How shall he not be with him? also freely give all things? who shall lay char- anything to charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. Who even at his right hand of God also maketh intercession for us? Verse 35. Who
1: shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness, peril or sword? As it is written. For thy sake, Lord, we are killed all. You notice he said, for thy sake. God doesn't get glory. God doesn't need anything. But for my sake, I'm put before my persecutors.
0: <laughs> Nay, in all these things, we are what? More. Then conquer us through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life,
1: nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. You are in the Father's hand. And the only way you can get out of God's hand is if you remove yourself. say well tell us the rest of the story here's the
0: rest of the story my eldest sister ag- used to be agnostic did not believe in god at all is she in the church in the full truth no she is not but she is
1: well on her way she is a spirit-filled church and she loves god and there's been a transformation Every time I go back home, I take my mom to church. I take her to church. I drive 12 and a half hours, and she will not drive 20 minutes to meet me and my family. But on Sunday, I go to her, and I bring her to church because I'm going to make sure this may be the Sunday, this may be the time that God puts that conviction in, and it wells up.
0: Last time I went home, my niece received the
1: baptism of the holy ghost i baptized my sister angie after she got out of prison the second time prayed her through to the holy ghost is she living for god today sadly no she's addicted to drugs like my mom my mother's 68 years old and still
0: addicted to every drug you can think of
1: but when she's sick what would the hope be if I would have gave up on God when I was sleeping in my truck what kind of hope would they have had if I would have given up when my life had gotten hard but I stand here today 25 years later July 31st of this year I'll have the Holy Ghost 26 years I, maybe this isn't Craig to say but I've been to hell and back I fought persecution from my own family. My old grandmother kicked me out on the streets. I didn't know if I was going to make it. But I had an old elder, Elder Gordon, on a Saturday night prayer come over to me. And he put his hand on my back. Brother Turner was his name. And he said, Brother Barber, God's anointing is in you. He said his hand is on you. Keep fighting the fight. Keep praying. Keep fasting. And God's going to do great things. You've come this far by prayer. And you're going to continue by prayer.
0: Many people, even when we started our church in Honeyburg, Sister Tammy, they would come in. And they would look and tell my father-in-law, well, look at Tim and Lacey. They have it all together. Look at his nice suit. Look at his car. His kids, they're well-behaved. They're well-dressed. I bet he has a real nice home too. No, I was living paycheck to paycheck. I was struggling with some things internally.
1: But you know what I did? I found myself in prayer. And I kept reminding myself I wouldn't be here had it not been for God. Don't let it be the big misnomer that everybody around you has it together. Because we truly don't have it together. But what we have is mercy and we have grace. And when we lay down at night, we have a peace that passes all understanding. When we wake up in the morning, we have mercy that is renewed every day. If you're thankful for that mercy, lift your hands, lift your voice, lift your voice.